Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. You have your Bibles. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, this will be our last time together, and so we're going to do something this week, a little bit similar to what we did last week. We've spent all quarter looking at the idea of the roots of our sin, how to identify them so that we can kill them, and really we focused in, kind of said there's four main roots, all right, so this is a summary lesson in one sense, okay? The first root is we doubt. We doubt something about God, His character, usually something about His goodness, His love, His mercy. We said last week this doubt in many ways is a type of fear, And so out of that sense of doubt and fear, it leads to a sense of pride. If God's not going to take care of me, then I guess I'll have to rise up and take care of myself. That pride turns into a type of coveting. We find something in life, usually one of God's good gifts, that we tell ourselves, even if it's subconsciously, I have to have that to be happy. Uh, If I have that thing, then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. Then I'll have a sense of satisfaction. Uh, But once we actually start committing sins and there's a sense of guilt and shame, Uh, then we want to cover ourselves. Then we want to try to protect ourselves and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So uh, we're going to look at one man's life and how these different roots of sin played out in his life. We're going to look at uh, Jacob, okay? Get a lot of information about Jacob in the book of Genesis. And the first root of sin is doubt, okay? And doubt, and we're going to see how the doubt really flows from his father's lack of love. So start in uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then I am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So here's what's going on. Isaac, remember, uh, God had started the covenant family with Abraham, Isaac's dad. In a sense, in the Old Testament, that was the church of God. Abraham was the leader. Now Isaac is the new head of the family, head of the Old Testament church, so to speak. He gets married, and for 20 years, his wife is barren. Okay, Look at verses, I think, 20 and 26. Compare his age of when they got married, when they finally had children. It was a 20-year process. And so Isaac is praying, leading his wife. He's presented, at least initially, as a spiritual man, as a godly man, praying, trusting, persevering in prayer for 20 years that they would get pregnant. And then they get kind of a double answer to their prayer. They get, okay, you prayed so hard, you get twins. But literally what she's saying here is it's almost like The twins were doing combat in the womb. This was not a normal pregnancy. It's like they're smashing one another's skulls. And so she probably went to a prophet to say, Hey, I was really excited about being pregnant. Prayed for it. Thank you for the answer of prayer, God. But why? Why this turmoil inside my belly? And he says, Well, actually, your two sons are going to grow up. They're going to become two different nations that will be at war with each other. But here's what's really significant for our purpose. The older will serve the younger. No, back then, by tradition, part of what you did is the oldest, part of his birthright of being the oldest is he would get a double blessing. He would get a bigger, better blessing. He would get a double portion of all the land and the inheritance and the possessions so the family name could stay strong. That was the normal way it was. And the younger, in a sense, would become a servant to the older. But God says, not this time. It's not going to go this way. Now, um, pick up verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
Now the first came forth, red and all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand, holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, just a little side note here. Jacob kind of sounds like or maybe has the idea of heel. And so probably what she's doing is giving him the name of, uh, the Lord will be at your heels. The Lord will protect you. He'll be your rear guard. Okay? I mean, she's a, she's a mommy. She loves her two little babies. She's giving him these positive names. Esau has something to do with red. Okay. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. So their personalities are very different. Okay? Esau is presenting as this very hairy, red man who's an outdoorsman, a hunter, you know, uh, a sportsman, what we might even today call more of a typical man's man. And Jacob seems to be more quiet, more contemplative, more tame, kind of hanging out with mom, staying closer to home. Okay? Now, nothing in this is trying to say one of these personality types in and of itself is better than the other. It's not, that's not the point of the story. You miss it if you think that. Then, just like today, there are different types of personalities, and every personality has some inherent strengths and some inherent weaknesses, right? But here's the real rub. Look at verse 28. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, let's just kind of meditate together on that verse for just a second. Remember, the Bible is basically telling us everything in the history of the world that is essential for us to know for our salvation and our sanctification. So sometimes it packs a ton of information into one little short verse, phrase, or sentence. It didn't say, Daddy just liked Esau a little bit better. They just happened to get along a little bit better. They both kind of preferred the same kind of food or hunting. It said, no, no, Dad loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, I want us together for just a second to try to imagine you are a young boy growing up in a supposedly godly family. And you're actually a twin brother. You're only about a second younger than he is. But for whatever reason, it's obvious, dad really loves older brother. And in comparison, it doesn't seem like he loves you much. What must be the thoughts that would go through this little kid's mind? <coughs> Why doesn't dad like me? What's wrong with me? Why does it seem like dad and Esau can always hang out and have fun together and whenever I'm with dad, it feels a little awkward? Why does it seem like dad always kind of naturally laughs at Esau's jokes, but with me, I just I always feel tense and I... You understand? I mean, he had to have felt like the black sheep, the left out one. And as we've tried to point out all quarter, mainly from the Scripture, but also from many examples I've tried to give you from people that I know, is that it's not a very far leap from there to assume, especially in a little kid's mind, if Dad doesn't love me, then what? Maybe God doesn't love me. Because remember when Christ came, one of the main ways that he taught us to relate to God is as our Heavenly Father. And it's instinctual that parents, and especially the Father, are supposed to show us something about the character of God. And let me just say another side note. Okay? I'll give two examples. One is, I can't tell, I mean, part of what I do in my job is I travel around to different campuses and we'll speak at these different meetings. And so usually at most of our campus meetings, they'll have a student testimony. Okay? And I just can't tell you how many times that I'm at some different campus. This has happened too many times to remember. It's really sad. 
and some student gets up to share testimony. Now, the, the end of the story is great because usually the testimony is about they came to Christ in college. So praise the Lord, all right? But it usually starts pretty sad. And most of the time, I've never met these students before in my life. I'm just in town to speak. But oftentimes, part of their testimony is a divorce. That shouldn't be surprising, right? 50% of the nation. And I just can't tell you how many times the story goes like this. You know, my dad left and my mom and him were always fighting. And I was really young when it happened. And I just started thinking... And, and when they say that, I, I know where it's going. And I've never met this person. Never, it's like they say something to this effect. Something must have been wrong with me. If I'd have been a better kid, Dad would have stayed. You ever heard that? I hear it so often. Now, here's the other really interesting thing. Now I'm in my mid-40s, and unfortunately, I know a lot of people that have been divorced. I got close friends divorced. I got people, members of this church, that are you know on the verge of divorce, and I'm trying to help them not get divorced. And so... Oftentimes, when I'm meeting with the man, unfortunately, tends to be the guy, the ones that leaves, right? Never once, and, I, and listen, most of the time in these situations, I have guys being brutally honest with me about all the sin in their life, whatever kind of weird, wicked stuff is going on. But to, to this point in my life, never once has one of them said, you know what, I really love my wife, but I hate my kids. I'm leaving because of my kids. Have you ever met somebody like that? What they almost always say, sometimes with tears in their eyes, is, I hate my freaking wife. I love my kids. This is breaking my heart that I'm about to do this to my kids. But I'm so disgusted with my wife, I don't care. I can't take it anymore. You ever heard that before? But you think little five, six, seven, eight-year-old Johnny or Jane or whatever, you think they understand that? You think even when Daddy says, I really love you. Nothing's going to change between me and you. This is just something me and your mom got going on. You think any kid really believes that? You understand what I'm saying here? I mean, listen, guys. And I hope you... Listen, Satan is not going to be mentioned in this story. But in one sense, you don't even need Satan to believe this lie. But I hope you see from everything that we've been looking at in the Scripture how alive and well Satan is to come and find opportunities like this and plant destructive lies into people's hearts. Especially through their parents. Okay? One woman that I know pretty well, grew up in a broken home, had a passive deadbeat dad, had an abusive, bipolar, mentally ill mom, and at a very young age, she started to believe this. If anything good is going to happen in my life, it's all up to me. Right? If I don't make something good happen, it ain't going to happen. Now, let's just be honest. From what I know of her life story, there's a lot of truth in that, in her growing up. But you can see how when that gets applied to your whole worldview and your theology, even in your relationship with God, that's deadly, right? But it gets so sunk into the basement of your heart before you're even old enough to realize what's happening, it can be really hard to detox from that, even once you become a genuine Christian. Listen to Tim Keller. Hey. Their parents' inordinate selective love probably accentuated and distorted the temperaments of their sons. Jacob became a calculating, mistrustful, manipulative, insincere man. We must neither feel like complete victims nor like complete villains. We must learn to understand our weaknesses in terms of family patterns. From his earliest days, Jacob seems to have lacked a sense of affirmation and value and everything in his life is oriented to procuring it. Modern people underestimate the power of affirmative words and condemning words, especially from parent to child. 
Words of blessing and cursing enter into the hearer and have a life and power of their own. See James 3.10. Even offhanded comments of criticism and affirmation pass into a child and lodge for years. I mean, how many of us have experienced something like that? And again, I just can't tell you how many people, when I'm getting to know college students and I'm trying to understand their story and some of the pain, some of the hurt, some of the stupid sin patterns, you ask them where it started and it's like, well, this one thing my dad said to me one time. Now, let me just kind of pause and make a total side note in one sense, but a very important one. Because any times I teach on this, I know I feel it, and I, can, I feel like I can see it in some of the people's eyes listening and thinking this, oh, crap. <laughs> I have screwed my kids up forever. And let me just say this. God's power and the gospel is more powerful than all of Satan's work and even all of our sinful parenting, Right? It doesn't lessen the pain and the power of this, but what I would say is the main thing is you pray like crazy for your children. God, have mercy on them. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from me, the stupid stuff I've said. And then where you're clear on, you know what? I've had to do this thus far, certainly with my three sons. I don't, I don't think I've had to do it with my daughter yet. Praise the Lord. Maybe I'm going to get one of them right, okay? I've had to go to them at some point, and I've talked to multiple points, say, hey, buddy, I said something to you that wasn't true. Or I said something to you in a way that maybe the words were true, but the tone was false. It was harsh. And I'm sorry. I was a bad representation of God to you. And that's our hope, right? Is that God can use real repentance and faith to heal. Side note, okay? All of our sin at the deepest level starts with doubt and fear, but then it leads to point two, pride. And it's a pride to provide. A pride to provide for himself. So let's look at what happens because of this. It's very interesting. Look, I mean, it jumps straight from the birth, kind of telling about their uh, personalities in life from this verse about 28, straight into verse 29. There's a connection. Because Jacob didn't feel loved by his dad, look at what he does. When Jacob had cooked stew, and there were multiple commentators that said maybe Jacob was trying to become a better cook because he saw how much... Daddy loved Esau's cooking after he hunted. He was trying to say, maybe if I can cook something good enough, Daddy will like me. Speculation, but sounds pretty accurate. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So Esau's had one of his famous hunting trips. This one didn't go too good. He comes home. He's like, man, I'm starving. I smell your stew. It smells good. Give me a bowl of that soup. That seems to fit with his personality, right? Verse 31, but Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? Esau's kind of like, yeah, whatever, who cares? I feel like I'm dying, man. Give me a bowl of stew. Who cares about a birthright? I'm not thinking about that right now. Yeah. Look at his response. Verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went on his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, um, Jacob, he is cold, and he is calculated. Again, multiple commentators pointed out that the way he words this seems like he'd been planning this for a while. It was premeditated. This is obviously not loving. Your older brother comes in, he wants some soup. Give him some soup. Right? But you know, he's like, I'll give you the soup, just sell me your birthright. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. He's like, no, 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 I don't want a whatever. I want an oath. 
I want a verbal, legal agreement. He's direct. He's assertive. He's aggressive. Here's one commentator. He says, the way that Jacob states his demand suggests long premeditation and a ruthless exploitation of his brother's moment of weakness. So Esau does it. No, but we're focused on Jacob. Obviously, this is not loving of Jacob. Obviously, this doesn't seem to be trusting God. Let's give, let's give a contrast picture that I think we're all very familiar with. Because we could say, but you know, God did say Jacob was supposed to get the birthright, so... Well, you remember the teenage boy named David? That a prophet came and said, you're going to be king. <clears throat> Didn't tell him when. Have you ever noticed that one of the hardest things in the entire Christian life is God's timing and ours never seem to be aligned? Right? Hey God, you gave me this big promise. It'd be great if I could cash on it today. Even tomorrow, Lord. Shoot, I'll wait a whole week for you, Lord. How about 16 years? And so many of David's men saying, you know, Saul's a crazy demon-possessed guy. Right? I know, I think Micah taught him this a couple weeks ago. He just happened to choose this cave to go to the bathroom. You, you have to kill him. It's obvious. But so much of David's righteousness was his unwillingness to take matters into his own hands in a sinful way, his humility. But what was the root of that humility? It's faith. God's going to handle it. God's timing, God's ways, God's plans. I will not rise up in pride. Here's another commentator. Listen to this. Waiting can be done if one doesn't doubt the outcome. We must believe the promises seriously enough to withstand alternative forms of provision which are immediately available and within control. Right? We feel like, this would fix my problem right now. Uh, it's just the problem is I'd have to sin to do it. So I'm not going to do it. I trust God. So We doubt. That leads to pride. Third point, that leads to coveting. He's coveting what? The birthright and the blessing. So skip over to chapter 27. It's a very famous story I think we're all familiar with. Okay. Genesis 27, start in verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Again, it was tradition back then okay, when the father of the house, the patriarch, was ready to die, that he would call his whole family before him, maybe even servants as well, and give them blessings appropriate. I mean, it was kind of like a last will and testament. As best we understand, Isaac was 137 years old when this happened. He's blind, he's bedridden, and oh, by the way, his older brother Ishmael died when he was 137. So he thinks, I'm probably about to die. In reality, he doesn't die for another 43 years, but he thinks he's about to die. But instead of calling the whole family, he says, I just want to call Esau. Why? Because he doesn't really care that much for Jacob. Doesn't seem like he respects his wife very much. Doesn't seem like he respects God and his word very much. He loves his boy Esau. He's like, I'm doing it the old-fashioned way. I don't care what God says. He has a secret plan. Okay. Now, the idea of blessing. And the birthright and the blessing are essentially tied together. I mean, both kids could get a blessing. But the birthright of the oldest entitled him to the biggest and best blessing, the real blessing. The other one was kind of like a consolation prize blessing. What does bless really mean? It's to bestow. It's to honor. It's to praise. It's to endow. It's to prosper. It's to give a gift. It's a transfer of strength. It's to, in a very generous and powerful way, give something to someone. Now, 
Jacob is coveting. His mom is coveting it for him. And as we've said before, so much of the time, guys, our coveting is not after overtly sinful things. Our coveting so many times is after a really good thing. And here's another side note, but I'll just mention it. Even our coveting of overtly sinful things, oftentimes at its deepest root, there's something good in there that you really want. You understand what I'm saying there? The person going after pornography, what do they really want? They want a type of pleasure. They want a type of intimacy that's not wrong if it's had in the right way. But they're just saying, too hard to get it the right way, so I'll go after the wrong way. He's coveting. And so, so, so many times, I think a subtle lie we can tell ourselves is this. Because what I'm after is such a good thing, and here it really was, I want the blessing that God told me I was supposed to have. You know, it's like I have a personal prophecy that guarantees this to me. Then we start to think the end justifies the means. And it never does. That's not the way of faith. It never does. One ounce of sin is never worth it because there will always be painful consequences. Verse 5, Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of trust left in this marriage. She's just kind of over... Hearing, uh, so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go down to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before Death. So Rebecca said, I got a plan. We're going to fix this. Okay. Now, another thing just to notice really quick. Jacob had already tried his best to secure the birthright and the blessing. Right? With his deal with Esau, big brother. But it didn't really work. Because it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I can remember some specific incidents, which I will not share with the class right now, where I might come home and two of my sons had made a deal. You know, they had made a bargain. And I realized that the older son had vastly taken advantage of the younger son. You know, and I'm like, this deal doesn't count, right? No, Dad, he shook on it. You know, it's like, I don't care if he shook on it. I'm the dad of the house. If I say no deal, no deal. So part of what I'm trying to say is this, guys. Oftentimes when we covet, when we sin, we go out of our way to grasp onto something that we desperately won't think we have to have. Even when we get it, oftentimes we're not able really to enjoy it, right? I mean, Jacob had already gotten the birthright from Esau, and yet he couldn't really enjoy it because Dad didn't sign off. So, Rebecca comes up with another plan. Right? What does he really want? He wants the blessing of his father. He wants intimacy with his father. And yet nothing has really changed. And even oftentimes when we get what we think we want, we can't really enjoy it. Not for long. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but it rarely lasts long. And there's always a bitter aftertaste. So, fourth point. This leads to covering. Covering his shame to self-protect. So, Verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. But Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I might bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. Now, please just notice, there's no righteousness in what Jacob is saying. He's not like, Mom, this is a bad plan. This is sin. This is lying. This is dad. This is not. He just says, I'm all for your goal, Mom. <laughs> I just don't think your plan's good enough. And I don't want to get busted and dad curse me. <coughs> Now listen, here's Keller again. 
The biblical blessing is a very complex composite of legal action and deep psychological shaping and prophetic insight in the future. <coughs> when Isaac was going to speak this blessing, it was prophetic. It had real power. And a blessing was going to bring real blessing, and a curse was going to bring real curse. And Jacob was smart enough to do that, and he's like, I don't want to get cursed. Okay? But his mom's got a plan for everything. Verse 13. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. She's like, it's my plan. If he curses you, I'll take it. Okay? Trust me. This is going to work. Verse 14. So he went and he got them and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? He said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you were really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. And so he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate, and he also brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close, and he kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, she has a way to cover their sin, quite literally, right? The clothes that smell like Esau, the hairy skin of an animal on his hands, on his neck, so he'll feel like Esau. They're still in the midst of their sin, but as Jacob starts to wrestle maybe with a little bit of the guilt, the shame, the fear that's coming to sin, he's like, I want to move forward, but I don't want to move forward without some covering. And his mom says, I got you. And this is a picture of any time the guilt, the danger, the fear starts to come in about our sin that we have already committed or about to commit, we want to cover up. We want to self-protect. Okay? Now you may say, but oh, I mean, come on. We don't go to elaborate ruses like this. I mean, we don't put on costumes to deceive people. Maybe not. But did you notice what Jacob added to all his mother's preparations? Just lie after lie after lie. And we tend to be pretty good liars, don't we? Because, guys, the reality is, unfortunately, when we sin, we don't care that much that God knows. Not as much as we should. We desperately care that other people don't feel, find out, right? Not going to tell my spouse. Not going to tell my kids. Not going to tell my coworkers. Certainly not going to tell the people I go to church with. We think that we must constantly put our best foot forward. Even if that best foot is technically a false foot, a fake foot, a not real foot. Now, let's think about application for just a minute. Skip down to verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of a blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Basically, as soon as dad's dead, 
Jacob's going to join him in the grave. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him for a few days. She probably thought, literally, maybe just a couple of days and you can come home. Until your brother's fury subsides. Until your brother's anger against you subsides. And he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? In one sense, their ruse worked. He got the blessing right. Didn't get revoked. He got it. In another sense, it didn't work. What good is a blessing that's primarily about land and property and possessions if the next day you have to run away? Once again, sin seems like it works for about half a second. But before you can even bite in deep enough to experience all the pleasure of all the security that it's supposed to bring, it's often gone. It's an illusion. So his mom thinks, I'll send him away to my relatives. He'll hide out. He'll come back. We doubt. We become proud. We covet. We cover. So we think I can get what I really want, but then I'm not able really to enjoy it. Well, guys, listen. This ought to be an incredibly sober warning for us. It's 20 years before Jacob ever comes back home. And when he does, his mom is dead. They never see each other again. Sin is never worth it. Even with the grace and mercy of God, there are terribly painful consequences of sin that ought to be a sober warning to us all. Instead of living by fear, God don't want to bless me. We've got to learn to live by faith. God does want to bless me even if I can't see it right now. Instead of living by hubris and pride that says, I'll provide for myself, we've got to live by the humility. It's really a type of patience that says, I'll wait on God to provide. And instead of the coveting and the lusting after God's good gifts, we've got to stay content with the gifts we already have. Enjoy those. Now, conclusion. Like I said, this is a very sad and hard story. In some ways, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He and his mom never see each other again. Okay, I mean, remember, remember what she said in verse 13? Pretty terrifying thing to say. Hey, if there's a curse, I'll take it. In some sense, there was a curse. And she did take it. Her beloved baby boy never sees again for her whole life. But even in this really dark, hard, sobering, painful story, there's a really, really beautiful picture of the gospel. And Ambrose, this ancient preacher, is the first one that I think ever pointed it out. But just let's, let's look at it together very briefly. All sin starts with doubting that God's going to provide, right? What we most need. And because of our sin, we end up ruining sin and shame, thinking we need a covering. And as we said from, I think, one of the very first weeks, the instinct to want to cover up is not a bad instinct. It's a good instinct. The essential question is just where do you run to get that covering? See, Esau is not presented as a great older brother, is he? He didn't seem like he had any love for Jacob. He had the birthright, and he wanted to keep it. He was willing to lie, deal, whatever. But in Christ, we have a much better older brother named Jesus Christ. And he definitely had the right of the firstborn of all creation. He definitely had all blessing. But because he's the perfect older brother, he said, I want to share it with my people. 
I'm willing to go down to earth to share it with my people. And in a sense, his father said, yeah, but they're under a curse. And he said, if they're under a curse, let it be on me. I will take their curse for them. And because he went to the cross and he took the wrath of God in our place, now we can clothe ourselves with his royal robe of righteousness. And we can approach the Father, who's not blind, right? He's all-seeing, he's all-knowing. He knows exactly what's going on. And he delights in it. We can come close. And in a sense, we smell like Jesus. Because the sacrifice of Christ has assuaged the justice of God for us. And now he can just pour out love and mercy and grace. He can embrace us. He can kiss us. He can hug us for all eternity. And guys, faith in that, seeing that, knowing that says, God has already provided for my most important eternal need. Why would I ever doubt him in these tiny little earthly needs? And it should embolden us in faith and simultaneously lower us in humility. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to rejoice in you. Help the truth and the beauty of who you are and what you have done for us explode in our heart so that there's real happiness, there's real joy, so that when real temptation comes and real doubt comes and real fear that we can push it aside, that we can be more like David. Say, I trust the goodness of God. In His timing, in His way, He will provide. So I will not take these matters into my hands. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.